Odyssey celebrates Mother's Day, brought to you by T-Mobile. You can count on T-Mobile to help you stay connected on America's largest 5G network. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. This is Chicago's all-news station. News Radio 780 and 105.9 FM WBBM. Campaign 2020, a key congressional debate. Illinois 6th District, an area including Cook, DuPage, Kane, Lake, and McHenry Counties. The candidates, Democratic incumbent Sean Caston, Republican Jeannie Ives, and Libertarian Bill Redpath. The Questioners, Greg Hines of Crane Chicago Business, and your moderator, WBBM political editor, Craig Delamore. And good evening. I'm Craig Delamore, and this nearly hour-long debate is coming to you, well, from various places. Some of it's actually within the 6th District. This is a virtual debate being conducted on the GoToMeeting platform. The candidates are all logged in, and we are ready to begin Here are the rules which have been explained to the campaigns beforehand. My colleague Greg Hines of Cranes and I will ask all the questions. They can be to all of the candidates or to an individual, and there are no strict time limits on answers. The idea is for the candidate to make his or her point and stop. In other words, it's not a license to talk interminably. If we feel a candidate is trying to filibuster, uh, Greg and I have the votes to stop. Uh, After a candidate answers, the other candidates can respond if they choose. Greg and I can ask follow-up questions if need be. And the final question of the night is one that will be more of a summation, and it will have a time limit (laughs) of one minute. And we're going to ask the questions uh, in alphabetical order as we go along and uh, changing candidates each time for the first response. And with that, the first question goes to Greg Hines. Uh, Gentlemen and lady, uh, welcome. Um, This has been an election year, a whole year, frankly, unlike anything any of us have ever seen. Uh, The presidential uh, uh, debate the other night was like something out of Mars. Um, So let me start with the top of the ticket, because that's what people are most uh, concerned about. Who are you supporting for president? Why? And as part of your answer, talk about president's uh, diagnosis of, uh, with COVID and how you think that whole thing has been handled. Mr. Kasten, let's start with you. Look, I'm supporting Joe Biden unequivocally. Um, I've been uh, very, uh, very outspoken since the start of Trump's election. I wouldn't be here, but for the fact that I didn't want to be represented by someone who would deny science, who would be um, openly intolerant of, of anybody who doesn't look like him. Um, with respect to the COVID, I am with the diagnosis. I'm going to be honest. I'm heartbroken. Um, I don't want anybody to get infected. I don't want anybody to die. This virus um, doesn't care who you voted for for president. Doesn't care who the color of your skin is and what the color of your skin is. And let's be honest, it is not a good thing for the United States on the world stage if people are questioning what the health of the president of the United States is. I hope he gets better as quickly as possible. But let us not lose sight of the fact that this is what happens when you ignore science. 
when you don't wear a mask, when you tell people to take bogus cures, when you when you openly gather people in, in rooms. We now have a super spreader event that happened at the White House. It didn't have to be this way. And I hope that when we are beyond this moment with a President Biden, we put science first, because if COVID is a shotgun into a crowd, there's a tsunami coming in the form of climate change. Thank and you, sir. Um, same question to you. Uh, I support the president's reelection. You know, I've seen most politicians run for offices on promises, five-point plans, and reform agendas that gain the support of hopeful voters, only to betray those voters and abandon their campaign promises and plans once elected. Love him or hate him, Trump never forgot who put him in office and never forgot the plans that he had ensured would be happening. He cut regulations that allowed the economy to flourish and job numbers to rise. He rebuilt our military, which is really important to me, and he nominated conservatives to the Supreme Court. That said, I have never been accused of playing follow the leader. You know my legislative experience, Greg, especially, and I have disagreements on Trump on many issues, such as enacting unbalanced budgets and large spending bills. I have been primarily a policy-focused legislator, and I have a record of working across the aisle to get good legislation passed. I focus on principles and policy, and I'll work with anyone, regardless of personality, to improve the lives of those that I represent. And the COVID part of the question, uh, Ms. Ives, how do you think that's been handled? How, how do I think COVID's been handled? Well, listen, we're all playing Monday morning quarterback here. And so there have been a variety of, of, of mistakes made by everybody. I mean, Trump was right to close the border. He did it at the end of January. And then you have Nancy Pelosi prancing around Chinatown to tell people don't be xenophobic a month or two later. So it's been mishandled, I would say, largely, but now we need to get the economy back on track. Um, and, and who do we trust best for that? Probably the Republicans, uh, at least I do. Um, listen, our medical system did a great job getting its act together. Our, our manufacturers did a trem tremendous job uh, producing the equipment that we needed, and our pharmaceutical industry has, is setting new records in terms of getting a vaccine to the people. So okay. the people came together to solve this problem together. And I think, um, you know, for the most part, mistakes made have been, you know, taken, handled appropriately by the private sector people who know what they're doing. Thank you, ma'am. Mr. Redpath, same question. Well, probably unsurprisingly, I will support and vote for the Libertarian Party presidential ticket of Joe Jorgensen for president and Jeremy Spike Cohen for vice president. I admit that one reason that I will vote for them is that they are not Trump, Pence, or Biden-Harris, uh, but the main reason that I will vote for them is that they stand foursquare against the ever-expanding government that is constantly served up by the Republicans and Democrats. Unless we change course soon, we risk a future federal debt crisis that would seriously harm the U.S. and world economies. And also, if the Libertarian Party presidential ticket or our U.S. Senate candidate, Danny Mayloff, earn 5% or more of the vote in Illinois, the Libertarian Party will obtain ballot access for its statewide slate of candidates in 2022. We would not have to do a 25,000 ballot signature and about a 40,000 signatures total petition drive in three months in 2022, which is quite a task. Now, I guess there's a second part to this question about COVID, and I would say that uh, this nation suffered from a slow bureaucratic response out of the gate. I mean, it's tough to imagine. I mean, who could have imagined what would happen this year with this uh, malady? Uh, but, um, you know, South Korea approved its first commercial COVID test within a week after meeting with private biomedical companies. Um, the CDC held back private tests. Then they developed a test that didn't work properly. 
Uh, we just were caught flat-footed in this nation, and there should have been there should have been allowed by government to be a greater private response. If there had been, I don't think we would be in the place we are now. Okay, and thank you all for that answer. I want us let's stay on health care for a bit um, because the uh, Trump administration is attempting to have the Affordable Care Act declared unconstitutional. Uh, some say millions will lose their health coverage if that happens. So starting with you, Jeannie Ives, what should happen and when? Well, listen, the Affordable Care Act is really no longer the Affordable Care Act. Let's be honest. It didn't work for Democrats or Republicans. You couldn't keep your doctor. They, they've, they've waved off on a bunch of the mandates. So there's no longer a Cadillac tax. There's no longer a medical device tax. There's no longer the individual mandate. Uh, they've they, over 30 states have asked for 1332 waivers so they can design their own system um, outside of Obamacare rules to treat their people the best. So Obamacare 10, 10 years afterwards is no longer Obamacare. Um, and what you have instead, you have had had 168 uh, health insurance companies leave the marketplace. In the state of Illinois, you've had premium increases of 267%. And now if you have to buy a plan on the individual market, you are stuck with three plans uh, that you can't even get access to our best teaching hospitals from. That's how much it has destroyed the, the opportunity for people to get good, affordable health care. It's not affordable. Listen, if you don't get that subsidized health care premium, uh, you literally are looking at paying $1,800 to $2,200 a month for a family of four with a $6,000 deductible, and that's for a bronze plan. And that's not even going to get you into our best teaching hospitals. It completely needs to be rethought, uh, and we need to go forward with a, a new plan that protects people with pre-existing conditions, which, by the way, is the biggest lie told in 2018. In Illinois, if you had a pre-existing condition, you always had access to our high-risk pool since 1987. And that plan is still in place, and it does still give you access to our best teaching hospitals, including Lurie Children's. So uh, Obamacare, you know, we did not need it to ha handle people with pre-existing conditions. The state of Illinois and 44 other states were already doing it. And now Democrats and Republicans alike are looking for different options from the affordable health care. I will tell you this, more government intervention is not the answer. We need to open up the marketplace. Price transparency is really important. That's for drug pricing, and that's for medical procedures. We, uh, actually allowing people to come together and buy association plans, keeping short-term plans in place that last for a year is a good idea using HSAs so you can, you can uh, take all of your premium costs pre-tax. All of these ideas will, will allow competition back into the system and get people to have a plan that they can design that fits their needs and is affordable. Okay, thank you, Ms. Ives. Now to Bill Redpath, and you, you, you have said healthcare is neither a right nor a privilege. So um, expound on that and what you think should happen with healthcare in this country. Well, yes, I, uh, people don't have the right to the sweat of other people. Uh, look, nothing is more important than good health. I'll, I'll grant you that. Um, but we need a vibrant and dynamic healthcare system in this nation, and it's difficult for me to see how more government control gets us there. Uh, we need to move away. This whole pre-existing conditions problem is largely an artifact of getting our health insurance through our employers. It, it, it makes no sense. It's a whole an, a, anachronistic holdover from World War II, 
Uh, it's not necessary. If we got our health insurance the way we get other forms of insurance, this problem would, would largely go away. You know, a better approach would encourage the development of retail medicine by eliminating existing tax subsidies for employment-based health insurance, by allowing people to purchase only the amount of coverage they want, including bare-bones catastrophic policies, and by expecting people to pay for routine services and treatments directly, the same way they pay for food, housing, most other goods and services. Then market forces would pressure providers to compete for customers by offering better services at lower prices, experience with LASIK eye surgery, cosmetic surgeries and procedures, blood tests, body scans, and most recently with walk-in clinics run by Walmart and other retailers show this conclusively. When people pay for medical services directly, the prices decline and healthcare is convenient and accessible. And that uh, I quoted from a Cato Institute report uh, in, in uh, that right, but uh, I said right there, but I fully agree with it. And I think that's the way to go, not more government control of healthcare. Okay. Thank you, Mr. Redpath. And now Congressman Kasten. Uh, thanks, Craig. Look, like, like Donald Trump, missiles would destroy our healthcare system. And that is what is on the ballot right now. The their Supreme Court will start hearing oral arguments, I believe, November 10th. And if the ACA is thrown out, 24 million Americans will lose their health insurance, 734,000 Illinoisans, folks with pre-existing conditions will not be covered. And let us be very clear, access that you cannot afford is not access. The Affordable Care Act was not perfect. But, um, but talking about how there are fewer exchanges now than there used to be, you're talking about exchanges that didn't exist before the Affordable Care Act was passed. We have, over time, developed a health care system in this country that provides health care, as, as Mr. Redpath notes, we have an employer-provided health care system, unless you're a veteran, in which case maybe you get the VA, or if you are below certain income levels, you get Medicaid, or if you're old enough, you qualify for Medicare. There are gaps in that system. The ACA sought to close those gaps by providing, getting to universal health care. It's a shame we didn't get the individual mandate, but every country that has universal health care has better health outcomes and lower costs than we do. The countries with the best overall outcomes still have competition in the system, not a single payer, but multiple competitors. But we have to ensure that everybody has access because the reality is any one of us, any one of your listeners can suddenly find out tomorrow that they have a condition that they do not have the disposable income to pay for. And if we do not look out for the least of, it, of these, then we are not looking out for anybody. So just to, just to clarify a little bit, so Mr. Kasson, you would basically stick with ACA, perhaps with some changes? Is that right? Well, the, the, ACA's, the ACA's success was that it got 20 million people coverage that didn't have it before. Its failure was that we didn't get 100% coverage. So I would like to see the individual mandate, and we need to figure out how to expand those gaps. And frankly, it's a tragedy that rather than working to fix those gaps in the ACA, we've been fighting litigation. I mean, one of the things that I think people don't take into enough account is that one of the first acts we did in this Congress was give ourselves the authority in the House of Representatives to defend the ACA in court because the Attorney General of the United States refused to. I don't know there's a time in history when the Attorney General has decided not to defend the laws of the United States. Understood. The office is bigger than the individual who holds it, and you don't get to just enforce the laws that you like. Ms. Ives, do I gather that you would repeal ACA? And if you would, what would you replace it with? 
Listen, like I said before, they've pretty much repealed ACA as it stands right now. You're letting states innovate and do their own thing with 1332 waivers that have been approved. You have cut major components of the ACA completely out of the act anymore. It no longer exists in its original form. It's a mishmash of policies. And of course, we can reform it with much better uh, choices for individuals. The problem with ACA is it's still unaffordable. That is the deal. It hiked premiums and gave you less choices. Why is that a good deal? It's not good for anybody. You're not telling us what you would do in its place, though. Well, yes, I have. I have told you I would let people have more competition with more insurance companies coming into play. I would let people come together and buy through association uh, associations come together and buy big group health insurance policies that are more affordable. Uh, Look, as you can tell, both Mr. Redpath and Mr. Kasten over time would destroy the private insurance market. And that would destroy the private insurance that you get to work. You know, I met with a manufacturer uh, the other day and he has, um, he's self-insured. And he essentially said, you know what, I found out that some of my uh, employees who didn't make that much money weren't even buying into our really good health insurance plan. And I decided I'm going to give it free to everybody because I wanted those people covered. I wanted them taking their kids to the doctor. I wanted them to have access to health care. I just pay absolutely everything. If you were to destroy his ability to do that by having a competing product, like what the Democrat National Committee has in their platform, which is a, um, which is a government-run health insurance, their choice, that, that they want to compete with the marketplace, then you're going to destroy over time private health insurance, and that is nowhere for us to even handle. Look, 180 million people get their health insurance on the private health insurance. If you go to a Medicare for all type situation, which Sean Kasten has said before that he wants people to be able to buy into that system, then you are going to destroy private health insurance over time. Okay, if we're done, if we're done with, we're done with health care, we'll go to a new subject. Uh, pandemics come and go, but there's always controversy about taxes. Uh, uh, in the, under this president, there was a major tax bill passed that uh, uh, Democrats and Republicans have, dis- have uh, disagreed on uh, rather strongly. Um, uh, there are various proposals that, uh, that keep coming up to, uh, to add taxes, subtract taxes, whatever. So what would you do? What's on your platform? Start with Mr. Redpath. Yes, well, first of all, with respect to the accusation that I would destroy private health insurance, I don't understand that at all. I'm not in favor of the ACA, and I'm not in favor of a public option. I just want to give people more choices in the private health insurance marketplace, uh, so I don't understand how that would be destroying private health insurance. But in any event, with respect to a tax plan, uh, our uh, tax system is an abomination. People have been talking about it for decades. Jimmy Car- Carter talked about it in 1976. Nothing is ever done about it. Uh, mm-hmm. I think we ought to go to a flat tax in this nation. And by the way, I'm certainly opposed to the uh, constitutional amendment in this state. It ought to be voted down uh, to uh, make constitutional a progressive income tax. And we should not have a progressive income tax at the federal level. I think the Hall-Rabushka flat tax uh, would be the way to go to truly simplify taxes in this nation. Uh, And also, uh, uh, I think that it would stimulate investment due to provisions of not having uh, interest or capital gains taxed. I know some people are going to say, oh, it's going to lead to inequality. But but that's poverty is a real problem, not inequality. And the best way to fight poverty is through a robust uh, free enterprise system 
which uh, the Hall-Rabushka flat tax would most, most definitely encourage. Before I flip this to Mr. Cast and Mr. Redpath, uh, uh, what, what would the rate have to be to pay the bills for your flat tax? I beg your pardon? What would the rate? Do the math for us. What percentage of your income flat would you have to pay? I'll decline to do the math, but I'll go with whatever rate the Congressional Budget Office says will balance the federal budget. How about that? Okay. Mr. Cass. Uh, give me a second because I need to reestablish re us. You are listening to a debate of the major candidates in the 6th Congressional District in the western suburbs on WBBM News Radio. I'm political editor Craig Delamore along with Greg Hines, politics and government columnist from Crane Chicago Business. The candidates are Democratic incumbent Sean Caston, Republican Jeannie Ives, and Libertarian Bill Redpath. Okay, good. Back to you, Greg. Caston, tax policy. Um, so the the tax the Trump tax cuts that were put into effect um, <clears throat> by the Congress prior to mine that are you know supported by Trump and by Ms. Ives blew a one and a half trillion dollar hole in our budget, and that's right before COVID it left us with vastly fewer resources to deal with this. It's not surprising why it happened. It gave almost all the gain to the top one percent in corporations. Thirty percent of U.S. equities are owned by foreigners. So when we gave that massive tax cut to corporations, that just sent 30% of American tax dollars out of the country. And it was very predictable. And, the, and it has now put us in a situation where government revenue as a percent of GDP is down trailing, getting close to below 20%, which is almost as low as it's ever been. We still need a government to provide services. We need schools, we need roads, we need a, we need a military. We cannot do that without a robust tax base. And, you know, I, I, I must say, like growing up as a child of the 80s, I remember, you know, trickle-down economics and the Laffer curve. At this point, we got plenty of evidence. We know that if you put an extra dollar in the pocket of someone who's struggling to get by, they spend it. If you put an extra dollar in the pocket of somebody who's already got a yacht, they save it. So the multiplier effect from high income tax cuts is trivial. The multiplier effect from a more equitable tax system is GDP accretive. And getting to a fairer tax system is going to be critical if we are going to grow our economy and make sure that we do indeed have a rising tide that lifts all boats. Ms. Ives. Listen, I absolutely want to make the Tax Cut and Jobs Act uh, legislation permanent. It has done a tremendous good for everybody. The, and the data's in. There's no more lying about this anymore. Listen, the IRS data is clear. In the 6th Congressional District, it saved residents $166 million out of 33,000 people that were getting hit with an alternative minimum tax, that went down to 1,180 people. It simplified the tax system. Every single tax bracket saw a lower amount of taxes that had to be collected. And yet, the numbers are also in on, the, on how many, much revenue that generated. And the truth is that it generated 4% more revenue, 4% more in 2019. The problem is people like Sean Caston voted for a massive spending bill that blew through our budget. His first, first vote on a budget was to get rid of the caps, get rid of the caps that have been put in, set in place since 2011 and actually had been uh, unfortunately voted um, against in previous administrations too, uh, including the Democrats. But he, he blew right through those caps again this year, spending more than $320 billion. Then at the end of the December, he's the one who voted for a $1.4 trillion uh, budget that was a bill, spending bill. So it's his votes that have created the spending crisis as well. He cannot deny that. 
But the, the truth is this saved people's money. And now he wants to repeal that tax cut, which would mean that the average person in this, in this sixth congressional district would receive a $2,000 higher tax bill from the federal government. 90% of them would. The other thing is that he's all in for the, the Democrat progressive tax at the state level. I oppose that. We don't need another tax hike in this state. We know where that got us the last two times we did it within the same within the last 10 years. Nowhere because they have no reform on top of it. How does you know, this is a man who has no spending restraint whatsoever. Three okay. trillion for the first. Let's, let's, cares? OK, we'll go on to spending, I hope, because yeah, let's, uh, a, let's give it a chance to respond to, respond to that. Respond to that. You want to raise your, all your uh, all of your uh, constituents taxes, two thousand dollars. Are you a big budget buster? No, no. And frankly, it's hard to get to those numbers. Look, the um, it, it'll come as a surprise to the folks in this district who saw their salt cap go away in the last tax bill that they have more money in their pocket. It's not what I heard in the last campaign and it's not what I heard. It's not what people have been pushing me to do. And we got I was proud that one of the first bills I put forward was to reinstate the the SALT deduction, which so many folks in this district um, depended on. The, the, the 2011 rule that Ms. Ives refers to, I believe is the sequester, which has completely crippled government spending. We went in this year because of those sequester rules where we could not curtail um, defense spending without curtailing non-social spending because they're linked together. This was a deal that was supposed to somehow create fiscal discipline and has completely broken Washington. It's bad policy. What we did do, however, first of all, what we took is we put PAYGO rules back in place that said we will not pass a increase in spending that isn't matched by a cut or an increase in revenue. That rule was not enforced in the last Congress. They they did a cut go, so you could only cut you could only cut tax you could only um, offset with tax cuts. And by the way, the last Congress waived their own rules when they passed that one and a half trillion busting tax cut because they knew it wouldn't grow the economy and it didn't. Um, I'm proud of what we've done fiscally. Now, the big challenge we've had fiscally is that by ignoring science, we now are in this massive meltdown from COVID, which is going to take a long time to recover from. Um, but I would submit to you that we've been vastly more fiscally responsible in this Congress than the prior. One follow-up for the three of you, uh, Mr. Kasten, I believe you would like to uh, repeal the uh, uh, the cap on, on SALT, state and local taxes, uh, which uh, uh, the deduction, which was set at $10,000 under the uh, under the administration, uh, the bill the president backed. Is, is that correct? That's that's absolutely right. The, that every tax code we have ever had since our first tax code didn't in, included a state and local deduction, and it, it actually goes back to the Federalist Papers because our founders recognized that there are certain services that are better provided by local communities than by the federal government, and if we if we double tax, we will create competition. Okay, that was taken off, and even Steve Mnuchin has said the only reason they included that was so that they could get more cuts for the top earners. Uh, Ms. Ives, where are you on that? that look, this is uh, Sean Caston speaking out of both sides of his mouth, and I, I did an interview with Greg. You know this. Listen, you have a standalone bill that says we're going to increase the SALT ca um, cap to 15000 instead of 10000 Fine. I will do that as a standalone bill, but that's never going to be a standalone bill. Everybody knows that. And the truth is, is that he wants to just tax people more. And that's why I brought up the AMT. Most people were having their SALT deduction 
actually capped anyway because on the backside they were getting hit with a special tax that, that when you had large deductions on a big mortgage and and um and property taxes you weren't getting your full benefit to begin with that's why it was so important to point out that from 33,000 people caught up in AMT down to 1,180 now the problem here is that Sean Kasten's a little bit of a hypocrite because he's all in for the democrats taxing the rich more and at the, on the other side, he wants to tax them less on their, their property, on their, with their SALT deduction. Well, do you want so to tax them more I on their property? That's what the deal is. Do you want to tax them more on their property in your district? No, I'm saying Sean Caston wants to give them a tax break because of their high property taxes. But on the other side, he wants the wealthy to pay more with the progressive state income tax. Okay. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Redpath, where are you on, uh, on the SALT deduction? Uh, I am uh, in favor of complete repeal of the state and local tax deduction. Uh, it would be completely repealed under the Hall-Rabushka flat tax. Uh, the reason it should be repealed regardless is it's a perverse redistribution of wealth in our society from, from society as a whole uh, to a subsidy for the relatively well-to-do. Thank you, sir. Okay, now let's, uh, let's go on to uh, crime and, and, and unrest. <laughs> We, we have been seeing violent crime on the rise across the country right now. And we've seen incidents of police violence, like the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis, spark lots of unrest. Now, let's take this uh, one at a time. First, what should the federal government do about all the shootings and murders that we are seeing across the country? And Sean Kasten, you go first. Um. So let's start with the Chicago area. The, a good friend of mine at the Chicago Crime Lab has pointed out that the, the reason why gun crime in Chicago has been going up, um, even as it was going down in other big cities, is because Los Angeles and New York are not driving distance to Indiana and Wisconsin. And one of the first bills I introduced was the Gun Trafficker Detection Act, which would say that if you have a gun and you misplace it and you don't report it to the authorities, you will be criminally, civilly liable for any crime that's done with that gun, um, which would go a long way towards cleaning up gun crime in, um, in the area. Now, you know, more recently, we, we have indeed seen a surge of violence. Um, and and let's, let's first just state the, the obvious, because I think it's, we, it shouldn't need to be said, but no conversation of public safety has any room for looting or criminal behavior. But at the same time, any conversation about our Constitution has to, re has to recognize and respect people's First Amendment rights to assemble. And there is, there is something totally beautiful about the fact that when George Floyd was murdered, so many people rose up and, and peacefully assembled. And the, I didn't see looting and violence when I marched in Wheaton or when I marched in Downers Grove or when I marched in Barrington. I didn't see Miss Ives there either just as I didn't see Donald Trump marching with Mitt Romney in, in Washington, D.C. But I did have John Lewis's voice echoing in my ear, the last conversation I had with him before I died, that he said he has never been more optimistic about the future of our country because he saw so many people who didn't look like him finally standing up for his rights. And I think we need to celebrate and honor that and respect the decency of what has happened. We need to, we need to understand the pain that drove that and and recognize that we're at a moment where having a conversation about systemic racism and the inequities is finally happening. That doesn't mean we're done. It doesn't mean the conversation's done. We've started it. 
Jeannie Ives. Well, listen, here's the deal. You have got to enforce the law, and that is just exactly what has not happened. Now, uh, Sean Caston would just love to take everybody's gun away or, or, or something like that. If that is not going to happen. We know he doesn't respect people who, who, who uh, want to protect themselves. And in fact, uh, you know, he, he would rather abolish the Second Amendment. But the truth is, is that people feel unsafe. So at the same time that you have folks like the Democrats, including Sean Caston, voting against a resolution that says you can't set up your own autonomous zone, and by the way, condemns the defund the police movement, at the same time he wants to take your gun away. I mean, people feel unsettled. They feel unsafe out here. And why is that? Because the laws are not getting enforced. It's nothing more than that. Kim Fox, I mean, this is last year released a repay gun offender on bail. And then while on bail, he was arrested and charged with murdering a teen in a drive-by shooting. That is what happened. Now, the way that we make ourselves safer is actually take a playbook from the Democrat Tim Kaine, who introduced a plan to strictly enforce gun laws in Richmond, Virginia, when he was the mayor. The plan was called Project Exile, and it reduced gun homicides by 41% in 10 months. And what they did is they told people, if we catch you with an illegal gun, you're going to federal prison for five years. They reduced homicides 41% in 10 months. When you, have, when you have, don't have the laws being enforced and you keep putting people out uh, uh, on, uh, to the streets that have committed crimes, that's what you get. Lawlessness begets lawlessness. And Sean Caston has never called out the, the looting that happened in his own backyard at the Best Buy store. He's, he's not called out any of the riots that have happened. In, and now people feel very unsettled. I mean, how can you actually look around and see that you, you have protesters, presumably peaceful, walk up to folks and demand they raise their fist. And if they don't, they swipe the table clean and turn it over while they're having dinner. That is not America. It's not but until we enforce the law, like they did in Lancaster, PA, after they had a police shooting, immediately enforce the law, put them in jail, put a million-dollar bond on them and said, we're not going to tolerate it, it stopped. If we enforce our laws, this will stop over time. But if you're going to allow uh, autonomous zones like they had in Seattle to continue on, this is going to be a problem, I think, job number one to get our economy back on track and to get things, uh, um, people feeling more confident in America is to restore law and order across the land so that you can walk peaceably down the street. That's what we want. Bill Redpath, what is your take on this? Well, peaceful protests are a constitutional right. They're perfectly okay. The looting that has gone on, uh, violence to individuals and property and uh, much of what was just described is completely reprehensible and should be no part of this nation. But I'll say three things. First of all, with respect to this issue, I would end qualified immunity for the police. And I would like to, I'm not asking the questions here, but I would hope that both of the other candidates on this um, program uh, would agree with me on that. Uh, and qualified immunity for the police uh, we need to end the war on drugs. I mean, it, it, it's, that's long overdue. If we're the least bit serious about reducing gun crime, you've got to start with ending the war on drugs. Uh, after the end of alcohol prohibition ended in 1933, the per capita murder rate in the United States decreased for 11 consecutive years. 
all right? How could anyone think that the violence we've seen for years in this nation, and particularly since Memorial Day, hasn't been fueled largely by the war on drugs and its effect on minority communities? And the third thing is, although this is not necessarily a federal issue, is occupational licensing. We need to make it easier for minorities to earn a living in this nation. In the 1950s, uh, only 5% of jobs required licenses. Now almost 30% of jobs do, and these include jobs like florists, uh, interior decorators, hair braiders, and even fortune tellers uh, in some states, believe it or not. Uh, too much of job licensing is a protection racket for incumbent suppliers and harms the poor the most. Those are the things that ought to be done. Hey, uh, and I'm going to want to follow up a little bit with the uh, with uh, both Mr. Caston and Ms. Ives. But reminder, you are listening to a debate of the major candidates in the 6th Congressional District in the western suburbs on WBBM News Radio. I'm political editor Craig Delamore, along with Greg Hines of Crane Chicago Business. The candidates are Democratic incumbent Sean Caston, Republican Jeannie Ives, and Libertarian Bill Redpath. And... Uh, for both of you, uh, Mr. Redpath raised an issue that I did want to talk about, and that is what do we do about uh, incidents and the frequency of the police violence that has caused some of the outrage that we have seen? Um, Mr. Kasten, first you. Well, I, 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 I agree with Mr. Redpath, and I'm glad you raised the issue of qualified immunity. I was proud to co-sponsor and pass on the floor the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, which, among other things, um, would remove qualified immunity. Um, the, when I talked to um, uh, Loretta Lynch, former Obama attorney general, she pointed out to us that when they went through, because, I mean, look, police brutality, especially against minority communities, is not new. This isn't something under the Trump administration, and, and it's, it's but unfortunately bipartisan. And what she pointed out to us was that what they fairly consistently found when they implemented consent decrees, whether after Laquan McDonald or, or elsewhere, was that in far too many communities, the municipal budgets have not kept up with inflation. And as a result for an awful lot of, of rank and file police officers, the, your path to promotion and pay increases depends more on who you know than your merit-based process, which, which really hurts the management structure in those police organizations. And she said what they found is that the best way to clean up those organizations is to replace the top management, put a compensation system in that, and a performance system that rewards people for good behavior, and then have some degree of accountability inevitably from the attorney general's office. And they found that that was really effective. There have been no consent decrees issued since Trump took office. So the, there's, a, you know, there's, a, there's a challenge that comes that we need public safety. We need people not just to provide our public safety and the police officers, but ultimately the police are who we call when we have a problem we don't otherwise know how to solve. Most of what they get called for are mental health issues, or as, as Mr. Redpath points out, to fight the war on drugs, which is you know, Jim Crow laws by another name. Um, the, but if we don't give police departments the resources to handle those issues, then we have a problem. So I think ultimately we probably need to increase the funding for police forces, but need to couple that with a return to consent degrees and oversight from an attorney general um, to fix the problems that lead to things like Derek Chauvin. Jeannie Ives. Yeah, sure. I have a few comments here. First of all, you just heard Congressman Kasten say that he'd like to increase the funding for police departments. Actually, they just voted on their second version of what they call the HEROES Act. 
It was a $2.4 trillion massive spending bill. And it was, it was down from the $3.4 trillion bill that they passed in May. And what was the difference? Well, they cut $600 million to police. He just voted on that on Thursday to cut $600 million from a police bill, from a big spending bill for police. So I, if you need more money for police, I don't know why that was cut, yet you kept in, um, you know, taking away uh, or bailing out student loans. So, I, but that's just one thing here. But certainly I, I support Tim Scott's bill that he put forward in the Senate. Of course, all the Democrats um, blocked that. I don't know why, but they talked about reasonable things that should be done from a national standpoint, and you could tie federal funding to that. But let's be honest, policing is mainly a state and local issue. And if you want to federalize everything and get rid of community standards, then go ahead. But if you have a problem with your police department, who's running these police departments? In Chicago, the Democrats have run the police departments for 90 years. In Minneapolis, the Democrats ran the police departments. In Seattle in, or in Portland, and you name it. So if there's anything like a systemic racism issue, issue who's running the systems? And why aren't they held accountable at the top? You're darn right we have to get a handle on this. And, and so uh, you need to t look at who's the leadership and who's running the systems and hold them accountable. But if, unless you want to federalize everything, um, you know, you need to, you, you basically can, can tie federal grants to better procedures, better training. I agree with that. Use of body cameras, things like that. But by and far, the police do a great job. And on the flip side, you have people literally targeting them, like the two Los Angeles, at Los Angeles County um, Sheriff's um, deputies who got targeted or David Dorn targeted. That's the problem we have here. Okay, Greg Hines, you can ask the next question. Thank you, sir. Uh, Miss Ives, I think you're up next. Um, is climate change real? And if it is, what would you do about it? Look, climate change is absolutely real. There's no doubt. I mean, 20,000 years ago, this was a sheet of ice, Illinois was. So it's certainly real. It was hotter, though, 7,000 years ago, 4,000, 2,000, 1,000 years ago. And I know that they like to talk about the rising of the sea levels. Listen, the headline this year was near, near record um, uh, Lake Michigan water, right? Well, seven years ago in 2013, the headline was near, rec near record low Michigan water. <laughs> So, I mean, the climate changes. There's no doubt about it. But a $16 trillion plan, as proposed by Sean Caston, is not the answer. Listen, we have, we have fabulous industries that have made us energy independent. And for be, us being energy independent is a national security in, uh, um, issue. That's what's important. What also is important on this whole climate change argument is the fact that Sean Caston is a hypocrite here. He talks about CO2 being a pollutant, which it's not. Every third grader knows you need CO2 for plant life. But he also talks about wanting to decrease the CO2 emissions. Our, we have been really good about this as a, as a country. Since 2005, we have decreased CO2 emissions 12%, while our, econo our, our economy has expanded by 25%. But you see, Sean Caston is invested in a biomass company that gives off one and a half times the CO2 that coal does. And it also gives off more ni uh, nitrogen oxide. So, I mean, these are real pollutants, and he's 
a hypocrite on it. We need okay. cheap, reliable, affordable energy. And I think our private sector has done a great job at figuring this out. Right now, if you were to try to do battery storage, you couldn't even store one millionth of the amount of energy output that we have in this nation every single year. So That's not an option right now. So what I hear you saying is that, yes, climate change is real, but the country is doing a pretty good job of dealing with it, and you don't see any reason for many changes. I, I, yes, and I think that the enterprising P Americans are going to help figure this out, what is going to the, be the next most efficient type of energy to use, and it is okay. not wind and solar. Mr. Redpath. Well, uh, uh, there is some warming going on on the Earth, uh, but um, I, it is really lukewarming is what's going on here. Uh, I, I agree with uh, this summary. This is, I'm going to quote a summary here on Amazon.com about Bjorn Lomborg's latest book on the climate. Quote, uh, climate change is real, but it's not the apocalyptic threat that we've been told it is. Projections of Earth's imminent demise are based on bad science and even worse, economics. In panic, world leaders have committed to wildly expensive but largely ineffective policies that hamper growth and crowd out more pressing investments in human capital from immunization to education, unquote. We live in a far cleaner world than we used to. The state of mankind is the best it's ever been, COVID-19 notwithstanding. And it's time we face up to that um, and, and, and deal with these more, much, many more people die of cold weather than warm weather. And there is not necessarily a relationship, and there is no proven relationship between the number of hurricanes. In fact, the number of tornadoes recently in the United States is down, not up. Um, one other thing, if we really want to do something about the climate, I would say let's bring the troops home from around the world. That'll, that will skinny our, our carbon footprint around the world. That would be a positive thing. Thank you, sir. And, uh, um, and, and uh, beg your pardon? Thank you, sir. No, well, I just, I'm sorry, I just have, I'm, just one more thing, if I may. Um, I just, there's a statement that Mr. Kasten's probably going to make about 97, that the science is settled and that 97% of the scientists agree. That simply isn't so. That's wrong. That is all just a statement meant to shut down debate and dissent. But he's going to roll it out here probably in a moment. So here it comes. Okay, uh, Mr. Kasten, uh, both of your opponents say this is a really no big deal at this point, uh, that we're making progress. Uh, I suspect you have a different opinion. And talk about your biomass company, too, if you would. Uh, the science is settled. There is no debate. There hasn't been a debate for 100 years. But there is also an enormous opportunity. And unfortunately, we've been talking about this the wrong way for my entire adult life. Of course, the climate has changed over time. There was a time when this planet was too hot to, to accommodate human life. There was a time when CO2 concentrations were too high for us to breathe. Um, there was a time when dinosaurs ruled the Earth. But since the time that humans have been around as a species and have lived in cities, CO2 has never been higher than it is right now. CO2 in my lifetime has gone from 330 parts per million when I was born to 415 right now. It has never increased at that level. For the first time in the history of all the records we have, we are seeing increases in CO2 followed by a lagging increase in temperature, exactly as predicted by Svante Arrhenius back when he first figured out the, the global, the, the greenhouse gas effect. But, but here's the thing. The reason why all of that has been so hard to control for the last 30 years is because we have framed this as a win-lose proposition between the economy and the environment. I built 80 clean energy projects. Yes, some of them with biomass, most of them with other technologies. 
And every single project we did had a mission to profitably reduce greenhouse gas emissions. I never built a project that wasn't at least twice as efficient as the electric grid. I never built a project that used technologies that weren't vastly beyond the life of their patents. There was nothing new that what we did. But more often than not, I had to get laws changed in order to get it done. And that is because we have we subsidize our fossil fuel industry in this country to the tune of $650 billion a year. That massively distorts markets. Bill, I, 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 you know, the libertarian in you ought to love cleaning up those markets. And so what we need to do to get this done to unleash the economy is number one, double the efficiency of our country. Cut our, our, GD, our BD, BTUs per dollar of GDP in half, which would take us up to the level of Switzerland. They have the same access to talent and capital that we do. They just have more money in their pocket after they're done keeping their beers cold and their showers hot. The next thing we have to do is we have to invest in research in order to decarbonize industries that we have no idea how to decarbonize. We don't know how to make fertilizer without natural gas, and I don't want to live in a world that can't feed 7 billion people. Um, there's R&D possibilities. we got to find a way to do that. I, I put a bill, the Clean Industrial Technology Act, that we just passed on the floor two weeks ago to do that. And then the third thing is we have to figure out how to get back to the CO2 concentrations in the atmosphere we had in our youth. Okay. The world Thanks, is sir. on fire right now. Those fires are not going to stop until we get back to a st stable climate. Thank you, Sean. Kind of uh, Craig, to you. You are listening to a debate of the major candidates in the 6th Congressional District in the western suburbs on WBBM News Radio. I'm political editor Craig Delamore along with Greg Hines, the politics and government columnist for Crane Chicago Business. The candidates are Democratic incumbent Sean Caston, Republican Jeannie Ives, and Libertarian Bill Redpath. Want to talk a little bit about the uh, so-called culture wars. President Trump has essentially suggested that we are in the middle of a culture war with, in his view, the radical left. And at the debate this week, he told the uh, right-wing Proud Boys group to stand back and stand by. Bill Redpath, what do you believe is going on as people see so much tension uh, in our political dialogue uh, this year? Well, I think this is, um, to a large extent, a product of uh, the two-party system. I mean, uh, there's polarization going on here. If we had a multi-party system, uh, there would be more diversity of viewpoints that would occur. Uh, I think it would diffuse the situation to a large extent. Um, I, I think that that uh, I think that what right now we 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 have a uh, I would say a political environment right now that that is. Uh, based too much on symbols, um, we we need to talk frankly about the issues more. Uh, I think that that we simply it's a very unwelcoming environment out there for third party candidates and independents. And I think that we need to reform our political system to allow more voices to be heard in the political process. Uh, if you can't get involved in the political process, then your only alternative is to go out and protest and act out. Uh, so that would be my way of addressing the situation. Hey, Sean Caston, what, what is going on in this country right now? Is it a culture war? So I, I take tremendous encouragement from the character of the American people and tremendous frustration with political leaders who would use their platforms to inspire hatred. The, the, everybody in politics has the ability to influence public opinion. And when you have a president of the United States, like when I was growing up in New York, this president took out a full page ad saying to, that the Central Park Five should be should be executed. 
The Prime didn't even come in. This is a guy who has been openly xenophobic, whether the way he talks about the coronavirus or the way he sends out fundraising emails saying that he only wants Jewish people counting his money. I mean, every of the worst stereotypes you can get, that appeals to a certain class of people who fear a world where they might be judged by the content of their character rather than the color of their skin. And when he sends those messages to the Proud Boys or to QAnon, he amplifies them. But I take great encouragement from the fact that the majority of the American people do not share those values. When I go out and I talk to people in the 6th District again, when I saw those, those Black Lives Matter marches, there was an amazing diversity of colors of skin there and, and religious views. I'm part of the most diverse class ever in the history of the Congress. That is awesome that people can now look up and see a Muslim woman or a Native American woman or a, an LGBT man or woman that are representing them. There's something that's beautiful happening because when the majority of the people vote and express their values, we have a government that reflects those values, but we have people who fear what that looks like. And it's important for those of us in positions of power to appeal to better people, better angels, and not be shy about calling out those who would appeal to our lesser demons. Jeannie, what's your view on what on the dialogue that is taking place in America right now? No, it's very concerning, quite frankly. Listen, um, I got involved in public uh, office because I got I, I cared about policy. It's why I went to Springfield. I thought, gee, if they could uh, just listen to some of this, this this good information, maybe they'll make a change. But no, it's all about power. And I'll tell you what, people are very concerned about the acrimony in this country. Unfortunately, Sean Caston has fueled that acrimony. I mean, if you don't like Trump's Twitter feed, then you're not going to like Sean Caston's either. He mocked Marco Rubio for tweeting out a Bible verse. He tweeted out a pornographic video of Cardi B, her WAP video, making a, I don't know, some sort of reference to the weatherization program. This is a man who couldn't even say something nice when Herman Cain died. And said he has absolutely no sympathy for or tolerance for people who willingly aren't wearing masks. He couldn't say something nice. When Dan Crenshaw, a combat veteran Navy SEAL, disagreed with him on a policy, he called him a racist. I mean, just lately, his first remarks after RBG died, his first tweet was, don't you blanking dare, Mitch. And then after that, he called Lindsey Graham a doofus. And then he went on to call Mitch McConnell a sniveling sack of hatred. So if anybody has fed the acrimony and the discourse, it's been Sean Caston. How can, how, how can anybody look up to him and say that he's the one who's settling people down and doing the right thing? He doesn't care what his voters think. He said what voters think should not matter. He said bipartisanship is overrated. I'm serious. He said the whole country would not pass a first-year MBA economics class. Ms. Ives, I'm gonna, uh, you know, I'm gonna I, just, have to... I have a problem with him getting up here and pretending like he's holier than thou when uh, he, he, he's, his Twitter feed, he, he honestly, he said, he said that his I'm, Republican I'm, colleagues I'm, are Nazi I'm, sympathizers, Nazi okay. sympathizers. Ms. Ives, I'm going to have to give him a chance to respond because we're almost yes, at the point absolutely. where we have the last question. Sean okay. Caston, right. you only have about a minute for you to respond. Uh, look, it's... Uh, I make, I make no excuse for opposing racism, and I make no excuse for using my platform to call out people who would cower in, in moments that require them to stand up. 
if if you are not willing if you are not willing in any line of work to call out people who don't treat other people with dignity shame on you if you say you won't do that simply because of the letter after their name shame on you there's a reason why the former head of the Illinois GOP endorsed me and called Miss Ives racist, homophobic, and I don't even remember the rest of it because of the way she ran her campaign for governor last year. But this is not about the personalities of her or me. This is about when you are at a moment where we actually do have white power, you know, Stephen Miller flashing white power sign signals from the White House. When we have the president saying there are good people on both sides after Charlottesville, we have Sebastian Gorka as a member of the Nazi party, Hungarian Nazi party in the White House. Why does it only fall on one party to call that out? Why is that partisan? And the fact that it is partisan cannot mean that we do not call it out. Okay. Well, we are at the point, we can't have any more back and forth on this because it's time for the final question. And it's going to go to Bill Redpath first. What makes you the better choice for the 6th District Congress member than your opponents? Uh, well, first of all, Craig, thanks to WBBM and Cranes Chicago for including me in this debate. I know there are other forums that have excluded me. As a libertarian, unlike Mr. Kasten and Mrs. Ives, I will work consistently to reduce government spending and increase economic and personal freedoms for all Americans. But beyond that, I will work to change the American political system for the better. This past Tuesday, we got a heaping helping of the dysfunctionality and exclusionary nature of the two-party system. The U.S. House has the constitutional authority to change ballot access laws for U.S. House elections in all states, and it should. For this year only, a federal judge reduced the number of signatures that took me to get on the ballot in this race to 1,600 from 16,000 normally, which is about 16 times as many signatures as my two opponents needed to get on the ballot this year. I will work for ranked choice voting and the Fair Representation Act, which would mandate multi-member congressional districts, giving voters many more choices at the ballot box. I'm Bill Redpath, Libertarian for U.S. House, and I respectfully ask for your vote. Hey, thank you very much. Next up is Jeannie Ives. Thank you. The 2020 election will decide the direction of our nation for decades to come. The choice is simple. Do you want more freedom in your life or more government? I'm Jeannie Ives. I'm a West Point grad and a mother of five and a military mom. And I have a long track record as a state legislator of standing up against taxes, unnecessary regulations, government transparency, or, and corruption. I stood with my district, and I will continue to stand with them on local issues such as zoning, schools, and other mandates. That's because when I look at the issues facing our nation, I know you are the solution. The people of the 6th District are among the most enterprising people in the world, natural problem solvers with an incredibly generous spirit. Sean Caston thinks you're a problem, though. Just look at how he characterizes those who disagree with him. He looks at the challenges our nation faces and believes more government control and higher taxes is necessary. He doesn't trust you to make decisions for your life. Instead, he wants the government to make choices for you. I know that with the talented individuals and successful businesses and great schools we have in our district, we should be national policy leaders. However, having what works reflected in our laws only comes with leadership that's willing to look past labels. Odyssey celebrates Mother's Day, brought to you by T-Mobile. You can count on T-Mobile to help you stay connected on America's largest 5G network. 